Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway evil will invade the world.
Okay, I'm uh, Dave Parker, and I'm here with Troy Howarth. We're here to talk about Black Cat, 1981 by Lucio Fulci. How's it going, Troy? Good, good. Uh, thanks for having me back on. Yeah, Troy has uh, worked pretty extensively on Fulci stuff and a bunch of other things. you want to let these people know what you did? Uh, well, I, one of uh, numerous books I've written is Splintered Visions, uh, which is about Lucio Fulci and his films. Um, I've done commentaries for, I don't know exactly how many, probably somewhere in the range of a dozen of his films, um, in a wide array of genres too. I mean, one of the things about Fulci was he was not just a horror guy, uh, he worked in pretty much every genre you could name. Um, so I've been able to cover a bunch of things, you know, not just usual horror films, but other, other types of films he's done as well, sort of historical dramas and, uh, uh science fiction and, and and things like that so yeah um he's he's somebody that i have a great deal of affection for and a tremendous amount of respect for as a filmmaker i think uh, long long underrated for many years although these days i think uh i think most people are pretty much on the same page recognizing his talent <clears throat> yeah i think you're right here so speaking of underrated i think we're going to talk about probably one of his most underrated and underseen movies now it's, it's in a weird spot for Fulci for, in terms of where it came in his career because everything else was a uh, gore fest at this time although people have kind of said this one no it's not nearly as gory it still has its moments of cruelty and gore in it it's still a Fulci movie it's just instead of you know being City of the Living Dead or, or The Beyond, it's just something a little bit different. So uh, We're talking about The Black Cat. It's his only Poe adaptation, but not his only film that involves any Poe stuff. I mean, a couple of his films do have Poe kind of dealings in there. And like every good Italian horror director, he has to take a stab at The Black Cat, right? <laughs> so Yeah, well, I mean, Dario Argeno did his later, a uh, decade later, as a matter of fact, uh, with... Um, his segment of Two Evil Eyes. So, yeah. And, of course, Luigi Cozzi did a film called, uh, well, it's known by many titles, but Black Cat is one of them, um, which is mm, perhaps not not quite on the same tier as the other two. Well, then you got Sergio Martino's. They, they say that uh, your vice is the locker room and I only I have the key as a black cat. But I, that's kind of far pushing it as far as I remember. I like that movie, but it's been a while. I, I don't know if somebody get trapped in a, a bricked in well, wall or something. No, there are, there are, there are some elements that are closer really uh, than, than even Fulci's. Fulci's film has nothing to do with no. Edgar Allan Poe at all. Uh, Martino's at least has the <laughs> alcoholic uh, protagonist, uh, a cat that is uh, maimed at one point, mutilated, has his eye cut out. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are elements that are in there that at least uh, acknowledge the kind of template of Poe's writing. Actually, in some respects, uh, Fulci had done an earlier film, a giallo, called uh, The Psychic, also known as Seven Notes in Black, Murder to the Tune of Seven Black Notes, um, which has uh, very strong Poe uh, elements as well with, uh, you know, being buried alive and or walled up alive. And of course, also City of the Living Dead has the uh, premature burial aspect to it as well. So uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of Poe in Italian sort of genre cinema, but that's not surprising because he, he's all over the map anyway, uh, in terms of uh, other countries as well. I mean, there are so many films called The Black Cat and most of them have absolutely nothing to do with the story whatsoever. I mean, we have a cat in this one. We have the Brickton wall at the very ending. We have the the symbol, uh, the end of the story, the cat meows with the, and and lets the uh, the police know that's that kind of stuff happens. And there's a fire 
that that's in there the wall the 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 burned cat on the wall is in the story as well so i mean there's vague similarities but the whole psychic kind of connection with the cat is definitely something different and it's funny you did mention the psychic and the ending of that one's just the darker version of this ending of course uh which i think that's probably was most i'd say is the most underrated movie i i just it just kind of stayed with me kind of haunting that movie's pretty haunting actually uh, this movie is much more fun than I remembered. This is one that I, it wasn't one that I would watch a lot like zombie or beyond or, or don't torture a duckling. It was one that I, I saw sparingly and rewatching it. It was refreshing. It was the first one I ever saw long before I knew who he was, uh, long before I knew what Italy was for that matter. It <laughs> used to run on, uh, USA network. Uh, they used to have a program in the eighties called Saturday nightmares where they would run, They'd run a movie and usually an episode, the 1980s version of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and an episode of The Hitchhiker. Um, that was your Saturday night lineup. And uh, they ran a lot of Euro horror stuff on there, actually, in hindsight. There were, there were a lot of things that I saw there that um, you know were, were kind of significant in terms of my interests later on, but The Black Cat was one of them. <clears throat> and I've told this story before that um, as a kid, I really, I didn't understand um, anything well most kids wouldn't know this uh, to do with like the technical aspects of films and and how films are sometimes shot in widescreen and they need to be cropped for for tv and this was this was the standard practice in the 80s and 90s before we have these wonderful sophisticated new tvs where you don't have to have that anymore you know, panning and scanning is not just doesn't happen much now um but uh, in, in the 80s, seeing this film, I was always confused by the fact there were all these close-ups of people's eyes, and they were, they were skinny. And what I came to realize later, looking back, and it was what they did with the TV version was sooner than just sort of crop it dead center or, or crop it in such a way that you only saw one of the eyes, they squeezed it. And so the, the close-ups of the eyes, every, everybody's eyes were sort of really you know squeezed like this, very strange kind of an effect and uh, of course because as you said before it wasn't one of his real super gory films uh, it didn't really need to be heavily cut for tv um there's a little bit of nudity and, and a little bit of gore but it's by and large it plays very much like fulci's attempt at kind of a hammer film that's how it feels like to me in the same way that a movie like baron blood feels like mario bava's kind of crack at making a hammer type film uh it, it's it's one of those films that uh you could easily see Hammer or Amicus kind of producing in the 1970s. And that extends down to the central casting, the, the, the lead actor in the film. Yeah, you mentioned the, the cropping. I, I was reading that. And that, that's very unfair for a lot of these movies being released on crappy releases and getting judged that way. But you mentioned the face being squeezed. And all I could think of, this is a little bit unrelated, is Little Face from Dick Tracy. <laughs> it's just completely sucked in there. Yeah. Um, and there's some funny thing about this, you know, faulty with the eyes. And there's so many eye close-ups of an Italian horror in general, and westerns, of course. But Fulci was pretty infamous for the eye trauma and eye close-ups. Yeah. This one actually had me laughing out loud just because I'm so used to the the the, the cliche, I guess, of Fulci. Because we do Patrick Magny, Mibsy Farmer, and then we go to the Black Cat. <laughs> I just started laughing. Eyes, lots of eyes. It was just like the good, the bad, and the ugly with the black cat. And I was just like, okay, we're, it just got silly to the point. Although I, yeah. I really do like the movie. But that part was just a bit much of the, the close-up of the cat's eyes in that, that kind of trio going around. Yeah, well, I mean, if you go back to the 60s before Fulci became connected with horror films, 
Um, you know, he started off making comedies and musicals pretty much. That that was what he did most of the 60s. And then he gradually started introducing like Westerns. And uh, he did his first Jallo at the end of the 60s, uh, one on top of the other, a perversion story. Um, but he did a series of films with a insanely popular pair of Sicilian comics, uh, Franco Frankie and Ciccio and Garcia. Uh, Franco and Ciccio. And uh, Franco and Ciccio were a major, major phenomenon in Italy. Um, these were films that parodied everything, everything conceivable from James Bond to Giallo to uh, Westerns, you name it, they, they did a parody uh, in some form or another, made an insane number of movies in the 60s and 70s, very, very few of which were ever released in the US. Because um, comedy is one of those, it's hard to translate. So much of their humor was very, um, uh, very topical, and it was very much based in Italian sort of culture and politics, but it was also a lot of wordplay and dialects. This is the important thing to understand, too. It's not, it's not enough to say Italian, but there are different regions in Italy, different different dialects. Neapolitans talk very differently from Romans, for example. And and a lot of that sort of sophisticated wordplay and stuff is, is completely, you can't dub it. It's just impossible. So a lot of that stuff never came out over here, but Fulci directed a lot of their films in the 60s, and the reason I bring it up is that one of the films that he directed is a, a film that in its title spoofs Sergio Leone. It's called The Long, The Short, and The Cat. Well, it's like the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it deals with uh, Franco and Ciccio being servants to this eccentric old woman who dies, leaves everything to her cat. And if anything should happen to the cat within a certain amount of time, they're not going to have access to the money. So they have to desperately try and keep this cat happy and keep it safe and everything else. It's actually a funny little movie and uh, it, it anticipates some of these elements. And that movie was from around, I think it was made in 66. So, you know, good number of years before. It's funny to see some of these elements kind of creeping in gradually, even in something like that, a comedy, you know, that assumes a different significance when you look at the later movies. Yeah. Um, as far as this movie's cast too, it's a really good mixture. I mean, of course, they got the big, the big like you mentioned, Patrick Magny being in here. He would have probably been in any. Am he's in a number of Amicus, I believe. Yeah, yeah, he's in a couple of those, and only one Hammer, uh, Demons in the Mind. Yes. But uh, Magny's a great actor, and uh, this was one of his last years actually being active. Maybe his last year in general in film, at least. Um, and he did three horror films this year, and all three are mm -hmm. all good performances. Bizarre films too. This one, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, where he plays kind of like yeah. the soldier type <laughs> the general, I think. And then yeah. he plays a yeah. ghoul in, um, is that a Roy Ward Baker uh, Monster Club? Yeah, that, I love that movie. That's a very fun movie. And he plays the ghoul, one of the ghouls, when they go to the Stuart Whitman in that one. Stuart Whitman. Yeah, that's the best segment of that movie, I For think, sure. by far. Hands down. Um, it's really legitimately creepy. It's, it's often called an amicus film. It wasn't. Uh, amicus was dead by then, but the... The, the guy that produced it, Milton Sabotsky, was, yep. you know, half of Amicus. So it's easy to see why they say that. He did another one. I don't know if it was the same year. It might have been the year after um, called Sleep of Death for a director named Calvin Floyd, who directed uh, what is to date the most faithful version of Frankenstein, a movie called Terror of Frankenstein from 1977, I believe, uh, which was a, a, an Irish, British, Swedish co-production. Um, but it's very faithful to the book. Um, but he did this film. It's based on uh, loosely on uh, the writings of Sheridan Lefanu, the writer responsible for Carmilla. And it's called Sleep of Death. And uh, Patrick McGee is in that as well. 
uh, along with a few other familiar faces. So, I mean, he, he definitely had his horror credentials, but he was not the first casting for the role of uh, Robert Miles in Black Cat. The original casting was Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing uh, had, um, had accepted the part and was in the process of, as was his tendency, you know, going through the script and making heavy notations and drawing little sketches, what he thought his character should look like and, you know, costumes and, and things like that. And, um, you know, it was funny because he made he made a special note in the script because he was an animal lover uh, about, you know, there, there must be somebody on the set at all times, you know, from the animal protection to make sure that, you know, nothing, nothing bad happens. Uh, I don't know how that would have gone over, although Fulci could be rough on on actors, but I don't think he was he certainly wasn't Ruggiero Delgado. Uh, he, he doesn't have that history of. No. cannibal movies and stuff like that so i don't think that there were ever anything untoward happened to the cat on this film but he had signed to do the film but then he got offered a um a really plum supporting part in a tv version of a tale of two cities which starred chris sarandon about five years prior to playing jerry dandridge in in uh in fright night um so he bailed he he decided you know he was at a stage in his career where the idea of doing a Charles Dickens adaptation was more appealing to him than doing an Italian horror movie. So he, he bailed. The second choice was Donald Pleasance, um, who uh, was going to do it, but he was uh, working on a film directed by David Hemmings. Speaking of other actors associated with Italian horror films, David Hemmings uh, was directing a movie in either Australia or New Zealand. I can't remember. It was called the race of the Yankee Zephyr. But it ran over budget and ran over schedule, and Pleasance couldn't get there when he was needed. Um, I've heard a rumor that he then tried to get Richard Johnson, who, uh, of course, we will remember for playing Dr. Menard in Zombie. Uh, and he's also in the Monster Club, uh, speaking of which, he, he plays the vampire in the uh, with comedy Pleasance. With Donald with Pleasance. With Donald Pleasance, yeah. Yeah, so it all connects together. I don't know if that's really true or not, but I've heard that rumor that they tried to get him and it didn't work out. So Patrick McGee. Um, was selected and Patrick McGee at this stage in his life, you'd be forgiven for thinking he was probably in his seventies. He wasn't even 60. Um, he was one of those guys who, you know, he, he, his hair went white prematurely. So he always looked older, uh, but he was heavy drinker. Um, that's, that's very well known. Actually, if, um, if you ever get the Blu-ray of the restored director's cut of uh, dementia 13, uh, Francis Ford Coppola does commentary on it, and he tells some very funny stories about Patrick McGee literally falling down drunk in, in the hotel where they were staying. Uh, so McGee was a great uh, theater actor. He was very well known for, for appearing in plays by Samuel Beckett and Harold Pinter. Uh, a, a really just one-of-a-kind one actor, and he was one of the relatively few actors that Stanley Kubrick used more than once in significant roles in his films. He didn't tend to use actors um, more than once, uh, certainly not major leading parts. Occasionally you'd have somebody like a Philip Stone or a Joe Turkle who played small parts. But Patrick McGee plays, um, you know, famously plays the, the writer who gets crippled in Clockwork Orange. Uh, and he also plays the uh, Chevalier in Barry Lyndon. And uh, he's wonderful in both. And talk about contrasting performances. I mean, Kubrick really encouraged him to go to like level 13 in Clockwork Orange. He's, he's extremely over the top in that film, uh, whereas he's very subdued in Barry Lyndon. So you get the full sweep of McGee's talent there. What an incredible voice. 
incredible eyes. Um, you know, just just an inc- and you, you can see why he did so many big close-ups on him. Um, but uh, McGee at that stage was not well. He was uh, he was pretty much on his last legs. Apparently, his daughter was there with him to kind of help him through the shoot, and and he was rather difficult to work with. But Fulci had a lot of respect for him. He didn't always respect actors, but he he respected McGee, and he said, you know, it wasn't easy working with him, but uh, the results were absolutely worth it. So, you know, part of me is kind of like, it would have been so fascinating to see super genteel, gentlemanly Peter Cushing in a Fulci movie. Yeah. Talk about contrasting personalities. I mean, Cushing, who would wear white gloves so as not to stain his fingers while smoking cigarettes and would always, you know, kiss the ladies by the hand and very gentlemanly and not at all, not at all crass and vulgar. And Fulci, who was incredibly vulgar. I mean, that would have been very interesting, but uh, I don't think he he would have been any better uh, than McGee. And quite frankly, I don't think he would have been as good because McGee had this extraordinary screen presence and as we said he was he was nearly dead by this time i mean he's by 1982 i think is the year that he died he was only 60. um you wouldn't think it I mean, you would have thought he was a lot no, older than that but for boy sure. what what an actor so i mean he didn't look any different from he does in uh the the price uh poll one he was in uh the the red death he doesn't look any different in that one than he does in this yeah. one and that's what 20 years 20 years Oh, 63. They shot at 63, I believe. So, you know, yeah, going on, going on 20 years. Yeah. Um, no, he, and, he looked very much the same. I mean, if you go back to the early 60s um, and see him in, in, you know, he was all over the map. I mean, he did low budget horror movies, but he was also, you know, he worked with William Freakin. He worked with Kubrick. He worked with uh, Joseph Losey. So he's in all kinds of different things. Um, but he, he did pretty much look the same, I mean, through it all. You know, he, he's, he, he, you couldn't mistake him for anybody else. See, you mentioned Sleep at Death, and that was uh, listed on uh, as 1980 on an uh, Internet Movie Database. I don't know when it was released. I watched it for 1980, but the thing is, it's, it's kind of a slow movie, VHS rip. Not a particularly great quality, so it's not ringing a bell too much. I, I, is that the one where there's a scene in the graveyard where he's reading The Grave? And yeah. she's supposed to be, yeah, yeah. I, I do remember. That. I barely remember him in that movie. It's, it's, it, it needs a nice remaster because that movie is probably not easy to judge on the quality. Well, that's it's out a tough right movie now. to see altogether. That's another one that used to run on USA, funnily enough, on Saturday Nightmares, and probably the copies that are floating around may even be taken from a TV probably. version. I'm not sure. Um, it's a, it's a strange film. Calvin Floyd also, in addition to doing Terror of Frankenstein, he did a documentary with Christopher Lee called In Search of Dracula, which is a lot of fun, mm. uh, which is, which is also out on Blu-ray. Um, um, but, uh, Sleep of Death, uh, yeah, it also has Kurt Jurgens, um, who played the villain in The Spy Who Loved Me and was in a variety of great films. And Marilu Tolo, who was in, um, uh, films for Mario Bava and, and uh, Dario Argento. She was Dario Argento's partner for a period of time, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, in the early 70s. Um, so it has an interesting cast. It definitely has cult value. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think somebody at some point, I mean, look at some of the movies that are getting releases and it's like, you know, give that one if, if you can find it. I don't know. You know, I don't know who owns the rights and what the elements are like and so forth. But it's uh, it, I'd like to see a much better version to really properly assess it. Yeah, um, as far as uh, putting Cushing in this role, I love Peter Cushing, but Patrick Magny is just more intimidating. Peter Cushing's not intimidating. I, I as much as he is, I mean, even in Corruption, like he's just, he's weird, 
but he just never gets that. He's he's got that timidness. And you mentioned him with the putting the white gloves on there, which is very funny because every Fulci's known for just the tobacco pipe and just falling, ripping, oh, yeah. it, burning yeah. his shirt. So it's just like yeah, it's, it's I mean, yin and yang there. Cushing could be frighteningly uh, nasty and intense in some films, like well, the Frankenstein it's funny. films. Yes, I was going to say that. It's funny because you know Cushing is so beloved by a lot of people, and they they kind of. Frankly, they lay it on a bit thick sometimes, calling him St. Peter and everything. He was a human being like the rest of us. He had his flaws and he had his faults, but he was a great actor and uh, by all accounts, a nice man. You know, he, an eccentric in some respects, a little, little odd, but, you know, definitely um, definitely a nice, warm, kind of friendly person. Um, but because he's so well loved by so many people, they tend to make excuses for Baron Frankenstein. Like, oh, he's he's a force for good. No, he's not. He's a complete sociopathic, murdering bastard. Yeah, he rapes the girl <laughs> the in Frankenstein movie. must be destroyed in the first film. Um, yeah. You know, he's 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 had an affair with the maid and he has her killed uh, when she says she's pregnant with his child. So he's a nasty <laughs> piece of work the whole way through. He calls his old professor so he can use his brain. He pushes him off the balcony. No, it's he's he's the most not. evil performance he ever played. He's in a couple of them, like especially Evil Frankenstein, which was kind of a reboot. They do make him more heroic in that film. And, and Frankenstein created a woman. He's he's maybe a little bit nicer. But the other movies, he especially Frankenstein must be destroyed. I mean, he could be. And also uh, another film he did for Hammer called uh, Twins of Evil, where he plays a sort of Puritan witch that. hunter. He's frightening in that film. So he could play really nasty parts. But. It's just it's a different kind of personality, and, and I suspect he would have brought that kind of gentility to it, which could have been interesting. Um, but I really like what Patrick McGee brings to it because McGee is just there's something otherworldly about him. Again, there's no mistaking him for anybody else. He's a completely unique screen presence, that voice, you know, and thank goodness he was able to do his own dubbing for this because that would have been a terrible loss if he would have been revoiced. And, that, and that's one reason that this movie absolutely needs to be watched in, in English instead of Italian, because yeah. uh, you, you don't want to lose that voice. Yeah, I mean, like, he also got other people speaking. I think Warbeck, he's speaking in English. I, he dubbed his own voice. I think that's his own voice there. That's his um, voice. It was yeah. shot in English. I mean, uh, not all these films were, but a lot of them were, especially the ones if they had an eye towards export, because the Italian films didn't tend to do great business at the Italian box office. They tended to do better uh, overseas especially in English language terrain. So they they tended to try and shoot in English or some form of English. Uh, this was definitely shot in English. David Warbeck, that is his voice. Mimsy Farmer, that's her voice. So the three leads, uh, that's their voices on the soundtrack. So thinking about this, uh, a lot of Fulci's movies take place in different countries, and I don't remember any movie taking place in Britain for Fulci. I might be mistaken. You could, is one on top of the other? I, I can't think. No, I, Lizard, Lizard, a woman, Lizard, a Lizard and a Woman's Skin was shot in London, um, and uh, well, well, that's a brilliant film. Um, mm, well, the, the Psychic is largely, is, is yeah. uh, set partially, partially in, in England. Um, but yeah, this is, this is probably his most, uh, English movie in the sense that, you know, you get a certain amount of kind of dubbed, you know, core blimey, you know, English accents going on in that. Uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, not being English, I don't know, but I've, I've heard people who are English talking about the film and say it is such a strange, weird view of England that you get in films like this and also Jorge Grau's movie, uh, The Living Dead of Manchester Mork, where 
you can tell it's it's and i would imagine probably also true of like polanski's repulsion as well in particular these movies that are made by foreigners uh set in england but obviously through a, kind of a different perspective that's always unique when that happens the what's that director from he's got to be from india maybe jag jag Mutar, i can't think of his actual full name but he did a couple movies in the states open house and and uh hack a lamp yeah. and they are just absurdly weird like he doesn't understand <laughs> halloween he doesn't understand like selling houses and they just have a certain charm to them like i would never be like they're great and i would never say i like to laugh at them i'm just intrigued by them and enjoy them so it's I well, bet joe, it's similar to that somewhat joe damato did a film called absurd which is very well oh. named and uh <laughs> there's that wonderful scene in absurd where everybody's gathered around to watch uh football on tv and they're the all eating big bowls the Super Bowl, and they're all eating uh, big bowls of spaghetti, um, <laughs> which is very American. So you have to laugh at that. Oh, that's the best part of that. So yeah. uh, Mimsy Farmer, she's she's really good in this. I mean, she I think she does better performances in Four Flies and even like Road to Selena. But she's just got a great unhinged personality. Every movie I've seen her in, she has a certain unhinged quality to the point where I always suspect her because I think that she's personally mad in every movie so this one it was she's a little bizarre she's a little unique she's definitely got that neurotic thing going on but she's good in this she's, she's also gorgeous she's got a great look yeah she's an interesting screen presence um i i like her she's she's got a kind of brittle icy quality to her that's that's a little different than somebody like katriana mccall for example who was starring in fulci's other horror films at this time and and i've often wondered what it would have been like if he would have put Katrina McCall in that part instead. Uh, I don't know if that idea ever occurred to him or not, but you know, it would it would make for a different experience. There is something very kind of offbeat about her, very uh, uh, well eccentric, which I think works well in tandem with Patrick McGee. So you know, it, it gives the whole film a slightly a slightly off kilter kind of quality. And of course, we got David Warbeck, who went on to do the Beyond. A great actor, yeah. good screen presence, better performance in the Beyond, but. Like your book says and stuff, he just didn't have much to do in here. He still does his best. No, he's fine. I mean, it, you know, he was uh, he was a New Zealander. Um, you know, McGee was Irish and uh, Mimsy Farmer's American. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he was a New Zealander who ended up in England for a period of time. He did some... Uh, he did some low-budget films in in, uh, in England. Uh, he did a couple of films for Freddie Francis. There was Craze with Jack Palance and uh, Trog, the infamous Trog with Joan Crawford. Uh, he's in Nose. He was in a very unusual movie for Russ Meyer called Black Snake, a very atypical Russ Meyer film. He was the star in that. And uh, kind of gradually worked his way over to Italy. He, he started off his first Italian film, I believe, unless there was one before it that I can't remember, but he certainly was in... Um, uh, Fistful of Dynamite or Duck You Sucker for Sergio Leone uh, in the flashback sequences with, with James Coburn uh, and loved working in Italy and did a ton of movies over there during that period of time where Italian films were just kind of you know getting cranked out left and right and he did a bunch of them. He worked with Lenzi, he worked with Fulci, he worked with Margariti and uh, always had a great time making those films. I mean he was in some terrible ones but he was also in some really good ones and uh, he always... <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, Miami Golem, which was Alberto De Martino's last film. Unfortunately, um, after that, he said he'd had enough. Um, but uh, you know, uh, Warbeck was always a little bit, I think, a little bit unfair towards Black Cat. He said, you know, the Beyond everything just came together, whereas the Black Cat didn't work. And I, I don't agree with that. I think Black Cat's much better 
than it gets credit for. But it certainly isn't a big fan favorite in the way that Beyond is. Yeah, and then again, the, the last... I mean, there's a couple other tiny names in here. I recognize the kind of supposed pervert from Don't Torture a Duckling. And then, of yeah. course, the one guy, the drunk, uh, he's just a character actor that I've seen. In oh, a bunch Bruno Corsari. Yeah. Bruno Corsari. Uh, he was, uh, well, I mean, he worked also with, uh, Mario Bava. Uh, he worked with, um, Lindsay. I mean, he, he's, he's in a ton of a Italian of films. Crime, he, if I remember a lot of Euro crime. Yeah. He did like the cynic, the rat and the fist, for example, for Lindsay. He's, uh, he's one of those very familiar faces. And, um, well, uh, Al Cliver, of course, Al Cliver, uh, go who Al is Cliver. one of Fulci's kind of recurring players during this period. They started working together on Zombie, and uh, he's dubbed on the English track by the same actor on both Zombie and and the and um, Black Cat, uh, Nick Alexander. So uh, you'd be forgiven for thinking that's what Al Cliver really sounded like, but no, not at all. Um, he's he's dubbed. Um, and uh, he would go on to do a bunch of other films for Fulci as late as uh, uh, Touch of Death and uh, Demonia uh, going into the 1990s. So uh, he's in there. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, oh, and Dagmar Lysander. Oh, yeah. She's, Dagmar, she's uh, House, House Dagmar by the Cemetery. Lysander. Yeah. She went on to do House by the Cemetery. She'd been in Hatcher for the Honeymoon for Mario Bava. She'd been in uh, all, all kinds of all kinds of movies. Very beautiful a woman, very interesting screen presence. Um, Al, Al Cliver, um, you know, uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think it to look at him in these later Fulci films, but earlier he'd been kind of a very much sort of chiseled pretty boy kind of a presence. He had a, uh, he had a very um, uh, kind of torrid love affair with uh, Annie Bell for a period of time. Annie Bell mm. was absolutely gorgeous woman and who was in a lot of erotic type films. Uh, she's in house uh, by the house on the edge of the park uh, for Deodato. She has the kind of you know, pixie hair. Short hair. Um, and, uh, you know, apparently, according to David Warbeck, uh, Dagmar Lysander was very taken with Al Cliver during the making of this film. And at one point they they ended up sleeping together. And, and Warbeck said, why? I thought you couldn't stand her. And he said, well, it seemed like the quickest way to get her to shut up. So, you know, apparently, apparently she was uh, she was pursuing him rather openly during the shoot. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, other, you know, on the whole, it was, uh, uh, by all accounts, a pretty smooth shoot. Uh, Fulci did have his difficulties, as I mentioned, with Patrick McGee. Uh, but McGee was, you know, he was a pro. He was there and, you know, did, did his job and everything turned out well. Warbeck did not particularly like Mimsy Farmer, though. He said he found her rather off-putting. But other than that, you know, he, he, he remembered Patrick McGee with a great deal of fondness. Also a strange thing here, we don't have a typical Fabio Frizzi, or we have Pino, yeah. Pino DiNaggio, which is crazy. Yeah. I, I didn't remember that. So I saw, I was, like, I was like, oh, this score is interesting. It's a good score. The opening, it's really good with the oh, cat. great score. And then yeah. I was like, Pino DiNaggio. I was like, what in the world? So every once in a while, he pops up scoring these bizarre films. Well, he also scores the Black Cat for Dario Argento later on. Um, so, you know, he's uh, he's a composer like Ennio Morricone who bounces from big films to little films uh, with tremendous ease. He does films for Charles Band's uh, production company. He does films for Brian De Palma. Um, he's all over the place. Um, this is his only time working with Fulci. I don't know if they collaborated very closely or not. I have no idea. Fulci, um, you know, wasn't always deeply involved in the scoring of his films. Uh, cert cer certain films he was, other films maybe not. 
Uh, but it's a great score, and unfortunately, it's never been officially released. Although I did find a uh, uh, bootleg years ago uh, taken from the master tapes, so I, I do have the score. But I'd like it to be cleaned up and and released and made available. That would be really nice. It's a really beautiful score. One of the interesting things I noticed about this movie actually is so Fulci's no stranger to kind of like hating on overly superstitious people or punishing superstitious yeah. people. And this one is kind of bizarre because we have a guy who he's upset at the small superstitious backwoods kind of like town, yeah. hating him for communicating with the dead. So therefore his angry thoughts, he provokes, puts psychically through the cat and the cat carries out the crimes, but then the cat gets the better of it. Yeah. This is the plot guys. So the cat yeah. gets the better of him and starts picking off people on its own accord. That's kind of what's going on. But is it it's the Poe kind of story? Is it the madness of him or the cat or both or they whatever? Yeah. Who knows? I mean, it's it's good, but it's just kind of a different take on his superstition in films. Like that's my favorite part of Fulci's kind of things, like his, his motifs that pop up, I guess, is the superstitious aspects in his films and the, the kind of backwoods mentality that a lot of times on Godly Warlock, the Beyond, all this stuff. Don't yeah, yeah. torture a duckling, it's the most in. Well, yeah, I mean, he he was very much a uh, a leftist, and he he had tremendous sympathy for kind of um, uh, the disenfranchised, and so very often in his movies you have characters who are rather tragic, who are just kind of victimized because they're different, they're outsiders. Think of Bob in City of the Living Dead, for example, and, and Machara, the witch, the so-called witch in Don't Torture a Duckling. Um, deeply distrustful of, of the organized kind of religion and uh, the power structures and so forth. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an element that's very interesting in his films. I mean, you, you know, on, on a surface level, I don't think people really took that very seriously for a long time. And then he realized looking at the movies more seriously and more sympathetically that there is a real kind of, um, there is a real kind of thematic through line that goes through these movies and there is a real kind of thought process that went into it so it's not all just about shock effects yeah i just thought that that was an aspect i never picked up on the first time uh of course i like the point of view in the small town definitely you said reminds me of a hammer film it, it's yeah. like and let sleeping corpses lie is a great comparison people compare yeah. those two so it's not like your typical swinging you know 60s or 70s london kind of deal it's definitely kind of the small kind of town drinking in the pub which is kind of fun. I just watched uh, for the first time Arnold, which got put out oh, yeah. by Vinegar yeah, Syndrome, yeah. and that had kind of this small town feel. That that was really great. I really enjoyed that. I, I noticed similarities right away to that. And so I guess it's not too far off. I mean, uh, I, I, is there anything else you want to discuss? Maybe connect it. Oh, there's another actress in here who plays basically the victim in yeah. three or four folks. Yeah, the victim, Daniela Doria. Um, beautiful doe-eyed Daniela Doria and the most horrible things happened to her. Fulci apparently really liked her and she liked him. Um, that wasn't always the case. Uh, there were some actors and actresses who, who loathed him, uh, but she really liked him and he liked her. He said, you know, she's just such a champ. She does whatever, you know, is required. She barfs up her intestines in City of the Living Dead. She is uh, horrifically mutilated and murdered in The New York Ripper. Uh, the most infamous scene in that film, I think, even worse than the yeah. uh, bottle up the uh, vagina uh, murder scene uh, in that in that film. I mean, she's really put through the ringer in that and uh, comes to a bad end in the prologue of House by the Cemetery as well. Um, she never really had much to do, unfortunately. I think her biggest part was New York Ripper, where at least she has a, a few scenes. 
but you know, for the most part, she pretty much just shows up to die really, really horribly. So in this movie, it's it's kind of the um, I guess the the lips tip of the hat, the lip service to the slasher movement uh, in in the film where the young couple goes off for a little lovemaking uh, in, a, in a secluded location and it ends up going very badly for them. So she's not as horrifically dispatched as in this as she is in some of the other films, but it's still pretty unpleasant with the, um, you know, um, the, the frothing at the mouth and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, probably the, um, the, the grisliest sequence would have to be the, uh, the, uh, the fire scene. Um, that's probably yeah. as, as rough as the movie gets. Although, you know, compared to a lot of the other movies, no, it's it's, very it's not that much. And I don't have a problem with that. And I, I think it's unfortunate that that film and uh, Manhattan Baby is another one, although it's not nearly as good. But it, it is an interesting film, too. It's got some really good stuff in it. And they don't tend to get talked about as much, I think, because they're not really gory films. you got to bear in mind, he makes Zombie. After that, he makes a uh, Poliziesco called Contraband, which is incredibly violent. Yeah. Um, then City of the Living Dead, and then this. And then right after this, he does The Beyond. So it's like this kind of run of really gruesome, uh, upfront, violent films. And here's this kind of throwback. It's a little bit more like a uh, an English Gothic from the 1960s. So it's kind of out of step with the times, but I'm glad that he did it. It showed that he could do it very well. And I, I think the movie, now that we can see it in a good quality edition, uh, and, and no more either squeezed eyeballs or just close up to the bridges of noses. That's how it looked on uh, VHS. The old bingo VHS was horrible. I mean, it was just cut right, you know, the, the peripheries were all cut off. So it was just like close ups of people's noses. Um, so, it, you know, we can appreciate it now. And it's uh, also another person worth mentioning, Sergio Savati, the cinematographer oh, yeah. uh, who was shooting pretty much all of Fulci's films during this run. He shot Zombie, Contraband, uh, City of the Living Dead, this one, House by the Cemetery, The Beyond. Uh, some of his best-looking films, and, and even earlier, they had gone back all the way to the uh, 1970s with films like Four of the Apocalypse and Silver Saddle and The Psychic. Great cinematographer right, and one brought of the best. a really, really tremendous-looking movie. So, yeah, it's uh, it's got all that going for it. And, um, you know, I hope that people who can kind of see past the fact that it's not a bloodbath can appreciate a little bit better. I mean, the script has its problems. It has its peculiarities. It's it, it doesn't entirely hang together, but uh, the mood and atmosphere are very much on point. And if you like Patrick McGee, as I do, I mean, it's it's just uh, pardon the expression is catnip. <laughs> yeah, and like it does have some Poe connections. It, it does feel a bit Poe. You know, it's not completely far off. Um, I guess yeah. if you take all those uh, Italian Poe adaptations, you'd get one close. If you take, take the little bits, you got Stuart Gordon even did one. So, I mean, so many people thought, did them. And then you got the American ones, too, besides the Gordon well, one. You can go back to the 1934 Black Cat with Karloff and Lugosi, which has absolutely nothing to do with Poe, but yet it captures the spirit perfectly. Um, it really does capture the atmosphere. And then, you know, Corman did his kind of version of Black Cat in Tales of Terror. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Stuart Gordon did his, which is, is uh, a very interesting take. Uh, Dario Argento's is closest uh, in, in many respects. It's the one that really kind of comes closest to the story. But what he does in his version is also working a ton of references, little references, big references to other Edgar Allan Poe stories. I yeah. mean, you can tell he's a fanatic. Um, so it's just loaded with all kinds of weird and wonderful references. Uh, Fulci's film is not quite uh, in, in that vein, but 
you know, it, it does. I think it manages to capture the flavor well enough. As far as other, I guess this is it's bizarre because there's it's not really an animals attacks movie. I mean, it is no. a killer cat, but I guess it's more like the cat from the uncanny or something. It's not really an all out yeah. killer cat movie. So it's kind of hard to put this in there and compare it to the other killer animal movies. There was a handful, of course, Venom, which we covered, which is also not a traditional killer animal movie. And we have Savage Harvest, which is Alliance, which is an okay TV movie. It's okay. And you know what? Piranha 2, the spawning, (laughs) (laughs) which I think it was made in the time dates on that one are all messed up. There's a couple more. I guess Wolfen, you could count somewhat. But again, not traditional either. No. No real traditionals except Savage no. Harvest, I don't think. Yeah, I yeah, I think you're right. I mean that that run was kind of specific from the late yeah. from the mid to late seventies, really, more than anything. I mean, it goes back as, as at least as far as the birds in sixty three, but it really kind of becomes popular again thanks to Jaws, which comes out in seventy five, and then after that you have, you know, like the William Girdler films and things like that that, you know, are um evoking that let's say but uh you know very entertainingly so so by the early 80s uh we've kind of moved on to other things i mean this is kind of the period slashers are becoming really popular yeah, so big time um it's not really a it, i wouldn't say it's really an animal attack movie Fulci never really did one of those although you know uh, the, the, the cat does you know do a little bit of damage here and there like when it attacks david warbeck at, at one point so get a little bit of animal attack action at least yeah, as far as Fulci's other two movies this year, it's it's so hard to compare them because House House by the Cemetery and The Beyond are such like heavy hitting classics that I'm just like, mm-hmm. like any other director having three movies of that caliber in a year, I can't believe people don't talk about it. Can you imagine having three movies that good in one year? Three horror movies? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the Black Cat is, you know, they're they're all released in this same time frame. Black Cat was made in 80, uh, but it comes out in 81. And, uh, you know, he does those. And then afterwards, he does New York Ripper, which is a much more divisive film. Uh, but I think um, a great one, uh, yeah. a misunderstood one, I would argue. Um, you know, and, and really, when you go back and think about it, I mean, track it back before that you have contraband and city of the living dead and zombie and go back silver saddle the psychic i mean it's a really great run of films that he does over a period of several years um it kind of gets broken a little bit with manhattan baby which is not a great film although again i think it's got good things in it and i find it entertaining enough and then after that things start to get a little bit ropier and, and kind of all over the place but i mean he continued to do really good work up until the end. I, I, I'm not going to argue they're all great films. He made he made a couple of bad films here and there. Um, who didn't? Fulci. Yeah. No, I, I said mean, who didn't make a couple of bad films? You know. Oh, who didn't? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said who. Yeah. Who didn't? Well, I mean, you know, very few, very few directors yeah. I can point to. I mean, Jean-Pierre Melville never made a bad film. Polanski, I don't think he's made a bad film. Uh, I don't know that I'd say that. Uh, I don't think Romero ever made a really bad film. Made a couple weaker ones, but I don't think any were really bad. But for the most part, especially if you're prolific as he was, you know, and, and yeah. you're, you know, he left behind, you know, fifty some films. You know, uh, that's that's a lot of films uh, over over a, a period of you know thirty plus years. So I I think it's a pretty remarkable body of work on the whole. It's unfortunate in a way that the gore stuff has become so 
you know, that's what people want to talk about all the time. And I think he was frustrated by that to a certain extent. He used to say, everybody always used to call my art shit. Now people want to call my shit art. Uh, and <laughs> I don't think he, that wasn't the stuff he really wanted to do. That wasn't the stuff he, you know, if you want to see what Fulci really cared about, what he really loved, look at films like uh, Beatrice Chenchi from 1969 or Don't Torture a Duckling from 1972. Those are films that he was really proud of. Um, you know, but it was to his benefit that it happened because it enabled him to be able to continue through the rest of his career, remaining more or less steadily employed, even though he had a lot of health problems and so forth. Uh, but he didn't suffer in the way that some of his contemporaries did because they didn't have kind of defined careers. But everybody associated him all of a sudden with making horror movies. It kind of enabled him to keep making movie after movie after movie. Um, and a lot of them, a lot of those later films, I think, are a lot better than they get credit for. Yeah, I can't think of any I really, truly dislike, except I don't care for Door in the Silence. But I think we've had that conversation before. I like Voices from Beyond. I don't care for Door in the Silence. I don't mind Door in the Silence. I don't like Demonia or um, uh, Ghosts of Sodom. The, those are pretty poor, I think. But, I mean, hey, I mean, if, you know, and, and maybe you haven't seen all the earlier films. I don't know. But of all the films you have seen, it's not bad to say, well, I don't like this one. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. okay. I mean, it's not like saying, you know, I mean, a director I love, like Jess Franco, I love Jess Franco, but Franco made a lot of really yeah. rotten films. Those uh, any jungle film for Franco is not yeah. good. No, it's uh, not not his. And he didn't care, and it showed. But, uh, you know, you, you accept the bad with the good and so forth, and that's just the way it is with directors in general. I mean, I was thinking before of other directors. I mean, Orson Welles never directed a bad film. Um, but there are a lot of great directors who've, who've made bad films and um, you know it, it doesn't mean you've got to turn in your fan club badge to say I think you know Dracula 3D is a piece of shit I mean it's it's okay <laughs> um, I still love Dario Argento I, I forgive him <laughs> I don't feel he owes me anything um, but yeah I mean it's it's rare for somebody as prolific and productive as Fulci was and if you look at that full body of work he was very busy he was cranking out movies left and right uh, during certain years of his life, very, very busy indeed. Um, you know, it's it's a really consistent body of work, I'd say. Yeah, I think that uh, as far as his con like his his films are concerned, I, I just wish people would start with the gore stuff, like I did. Like, I mean, you know, Zombie is such a big title; it's yeah. such an eye catching poster. People see it, like, what is like Dawn of the Dead? So, what's this zombie? Yeah. I'll check it out. They like it. They see the Beyond, and then they. And then hopefully they move back to Don't Torture a Duckling and give that a spot because that you get into the, the big mainstream Italian horror, demon, zombie, you know, deep red. And then you kind of move Suspiria. You start moving into the more kind of weird jolly. And then before you know it, you're sitting there watching, you know, weird subgenres of movies you never thought you'd enjoy. And you're, you're sitting there watching them. That's how it kind of worked for me, at least, you know, just introduced. And then before long, you're, you're trying to watch everything. Yeah, I mean, when I did my book on Fulci, um, you know, which, oh God, I mean, that was almost 10 years ago that I wrote it. Um, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do was pay attention to his full scope of his body of work because I felt like other attempts had kind of glossed over a lot of the films. And I, I don't think it's fair to do that, you know, even if, you, if you're not a big fan of like the comedies and the musicals and things like that, <clears throat> you should still kind of try to dissect them a little bit and give them, you know, give them their due. 
And so that's what I tried to do in my book was to not just focus on the popular, you know, the big gore movies that everybody knows and everybody talks about. Let's talk about the other types of films that he did too. And I mean, really, again, he, he dabbled in just about every genre you can think of. And I don't think he was defeated by any of them. He, he always managed to find an interesting twist on any genre he worked in. Yeah, I can't think of any I truly dislike. Honestly, like I said, Door in the Silence. I'd give it another shot, though. I'd give it another try when Inevitably 7 or somebody puts out the Blu-ray. I'll buy it and I'll watch it. It'll happen. It'll happen. That's a film mirage, isn't it? It's a film mirage. And, uh, well, to to be fair to Fulci, Fulci didn't want to make that film. Uh, It was based on a short story that he had written. And uh, Joe D'Amato, who was the head of Film Mirage, loved the story and really thought, he was convinced this movie was going to be like a big art house type thing and it was going to win prizes. And Fulci was like, it's a guy driving around in a car. Why do you want to make this? And, and <laughs> but he, he did it. He did the best job that he could with it. Um, I, I find it interesting as a kind of like, it's a very minimalist experience. <laughs> it's it, there. It is kind of like an overextended twilight zone. I don't disagree, but it's, uh, I don't know. I find it easy viewing. It, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I, been, um, I think everybody else I, I was talking to liked it. And I was just like, oh, are you guys crazy? It's just John Savage doing this. I'm just driving around in the car. And, and, and it is true. It is, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, and it was the only time that he used a, a pseudonym uh, on one of his films. And unfortunately, it was his last movie. Um, but, you know, he wasn't he wasn't particularly he couldn't understand it. But I mean, D'Amato wanted to make it. The money was there. OK, I'll, I'll make it. I don't get it. You know, I don't understand why you think this. But uh, D'Amato apparently really thought this was going to be like a prestige type thing. And it just didn't work out. Uh, and, and the movie was barely distributed, of course. So uh, the film Mirage Library is is uh, getting a fair amount of representation on Blu-ray. So I think it's only a matter of time until somebody upgrades Door to Silence. Pretty patchy uh, film library, I will say, but entertaining nonetheless. Uh, what was the first one was Stage Fright, right? I love Stage Frights. It's their best, probably, in the whole library. I don't know if that was their first production. I have a feeling they, they made more before that, but it was certainly, well, that's the best one. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, that down. was the only movie that uh, Suave directed for him, and that was a, that's a really, really good film. Um, you know, and, uh, oh, I'm fond of a lot of them. I mean, even <laughs> they're not great films, but, you know, some some of the uh, movies like Beyond Dark, not Beyond the Darkness, the Demato Beyond film, Darkness, but Beyond Darkness. Yeah. For I, Gazzo, I find, right? For Gaza, so I think it's an entertaining enough movie. And Ghost House by Lindsay. And, uh, you know, they're, they're enjoyable. They all have this kind of weird, soft focus, kind of slightly dreamy quality to them that I... And it, it it's the it's the dying gasp, it's the death rattle of a period of film that we're never going to get back to. Um, so there's a certain nostalgia value to that. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to plug before we get out of here? Any last words on Fulci, Black Hat? Um, no, I mean, again, I, I would encourage anybody who, you know, if you saw Black Hat years ago, uh, when you were kind of, you know, high off of the fumes of movies like The Beyond, on to New York Ripper and whatnot, you thought it was boring. Maybe give it another shot. You might be surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised by how good it is. Um, you know, as far as Fulci's concerned, uh, you could do worse. You, you might do better, but you certainly could do worse than to read my uh, book on, on Fulci, Splintered Visions. It is available on Amazon. Uh, and if you found any of this interesting to listen to, you can hear me rapping on about a lot of his films 
Uh, I've done commentaries for just off the top of my head. There are others, but uh, Don't Torture a Duckling, Zombie, House by the Cemetery, New York Ripper, uh, Enigma, um, you know, and uh, The Psychic and, and others. So uh, you can certainly listen to me talk about those movies in depth on their various different Blu-ray and in some cases 4K editions. I appreciate it. I know Troy will be back for a couple more of these episodes, maybe with some more guests too as well. We'll have to schedule those. Uh, get, we'll get to them as soon as we can. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. No luck. one. 